Hello and welcome to the Developing Your Football World podcast with the British Football Coaches Network. Today's guest is a promising young coach from Southampton, Henry Stone. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show. Henry, good morning. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Ah, oh, really well, thank you. Looking forward to this. Thank you for giving up your time and coming on to speak to us. That's no, a pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to um, just kind of speaking about loads of different coaching stuff. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, perfect. Coaching is always fun to talk about. I've just noticed your boots behind you. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Like before, I complimented you on that, that fantastic shirt. It looks like a piece of art, actually. <clears throat> What's the shirt just behind you, the green one? The green one, that would be the Liverpool goalkeeper kit from last season. My um, my my girls, my under-12s back then, they got it for me as a birthday present. So it's got my name and my favourite number on the back. Well, my age on the back, as you can see, 21. So, yeah, I was, I was absolutely chuffed with that when they gave it to me. Excellent. So what are you doing currently coaching-wise? What I think the question is, what aren't I doing currently coaching-wise? Um, I'm delivering around 15 to 20 sessions paid per week. Um, um, four slash five uh, voluntary stuff as well. Um, so that kind of varies between uh, school stuff. Uh, obviously, I mentioned to you disabled football as well. Um, obviously, I've got my my under thirteen uh, girls team, and obviously one to ones as well, um, and some academy hours as well on a Wednesday and a Friday night. So it's a, it's a good mix of stuff. But it's uh, I'm all over the place. I don't often get a moment to rest, but I think that's the best way it should be. You know. Yeah, and I, that's a very full plate. And like we said before, starting because you're at the age where you've got a lot of energy, you've got a lot of time. It's fantastic to see you putting so much time and effort in and coaching a variety of session types as well, different ages, different ability levels, different demands. And that will only accelerate your development as a coach because the best coaches have a, a divergent range of skills. And then yeah. in, in your, you're working on that right now at the, at the tender age of 21, I do not feel like I am uh, well, 12 years older than you, but fair play, mate. Well done. So let's talk about what got you into coaching in the first place. Oh, um, I think throughout my life, all the way from probably the age of four or five, football was pretty much everything. I was the same kind of young lad, um, you know, football obsessed. Um, obviously, I wanted to be a professional football player, uh, as if, like, I'm sorry, as every other boy does in uh, in England. Um, so I got around to the age of 14, 15, um, playing good standard, uh, kind of different training centres, having trials at academies and professional clubs. Um, when I got to the age of 15, 16, obviously left school, um, went straight into a scholarship programme, uh, just local to me, spent a year there, and then spent two years at National League Club Eastleigh, um, and I got a injury in my groin, cliche, I know, um, but I had a lot of time, a lot of spare time. I was doing some some school stuff as a part-time job, uh, just just as a moneymaker, really, I'll be as blunt as possible. I needed a bit of spare cash to kind of, you know, 
pay for the train to get to training and just to buy a new pair of boots because you know training full time you go through this gear like it's like it's nothing so I just need a bit of spare cash um but when I got my injury I had a lot of spare time and you know, as you probably know with scholarships you do um education as well um and I actually finished my education four months early so I had all this spare time to um just to kind of fill um so I was doing the PPA stuff uh, I was working for a man called Ricky Fernandez and that's kind of where my coaching journey started and um, he coached at Saints Academy for 12 years and he used to take me down to, um, I don't know if you know the Saints training ground, but Staplewood, he used to take me down there. I used to watch him and obviously not being able to play and, you know, I needed some kind of football fix um, and just standing there and watching him coach, I was just like, I need to give this like a proper go because this looks like proper, proper decent. And I, I'd done voluntary stuff here and there, um, but, you know, just picking up cones and stuff like that. Um, so when I got towards the back end of my injury, it was March 2020, sadly. And we all know what happened um, in that time, you know, the, you know, the world we were in. But um, I left Eastley. They said that they didn't have a place for me anymore because one I wasn't good enough and two my injury so literally from the age of 17 18 until up until now it's been full-time coaching just any any hours I can get my hands on um but like you say go back to your back to your question Will is um it was just something different um and it gave me a feeling that playing never did it was if I felt like I was giving something to someone whereas when I was playing I always felt like I was taking and it was all based around me and I, I don't like being always in the spotlight I like kind of doing my own thing and cracking on um, and being able to give something to players of all age and share my experience and ways that I've learned you know not just on the pitch but off the pitch as well um, yeah that was kind of the, the biggest reason I got in was just kind of that social interaction and giving back to people and also just learning the game from a different eye because you see it so much differently still on the sidelines than when you're actually on the pitch so yeah that's so like I say playing um obviously giving back to people learning it from a new perspective and just that interaction is kind of where I sit with that to be fair when you were watching those sessions, what was it that appealed to you most? What was it that potentially in your head you've gone, this is great, I need to do this? Um, I think it's just Ricky was such a kind of idol for me and I always looked up to him. Oh, we still speak now, but he's um, he's moved out to Ireland but, so we don't see each other as much anymore. But it was just the passion which he was putting into it and... You know, I, I love I love looking into detail and looking at refining things to like the, the absolute microscopic size and just seeing the interaction that he had with them and how he could not manipulate them in a malicious way, but manipulate them to get them to where they need to be development wise. I, I just love seeing how he set out a session a certain way or the detail that he would coach, even passing a ball. I just love that detail. And I felt like, when you're playing you don't pay attention to it as much because you're just playing the game and being able to stay, take a step back from it and 
you know, read articles online about how you deliver a certain session or how to engage your players through this and the other. It was just the, the level of detail that he went into and the passion that he delivered it with. I just I was like, that is just, well, that's fantastic. Like, that is that just really, really intrigued me. And that kind of, look, I'm, I'm sure we'll go off into it a bit more later, but he really inspired me to take that step into coaching. I think we all need someone like that. Um, yeah, he, he was a massive part with, like I said, detail, passion, and just the kind of, I, I've never been massive on confidence. And when he taught me how to deliver and I watched his sessions, I kind of gained that confidence. And it was just all like an accumulative amount of things put together. I just stood there and I was like, this, this is for me. I can't see myself doing another job regardless if I get paid for it or not, this is what I love to be doing. Yeah, a lot of coaches have that epiphany, uh, particularly at a crucial age. I think a lot of us in our early 20s, mm. you've got the opportunity to go into coaching and start taking it a bit more seriously. But perhaps some of your mates are doing more boring jobs, but earning mm. a bit more money. You think, oh, the trade-off. I get to work with kids, I get to wear shorts, I get to kick footballs, yeah. or I could sit behind a desk all day and, and make someone else richer. So now you've got a few years under your belt, what do you find are the most enjoyable elements of coaching? Like, like you say, Will, it's, it is a catch-22 with the financial side of things, but you know, I, I was, um, me and a few coaches that I work with, uh, a company called Estrella, um, we had a bit of a, a social last night and we were speaking about this topic about, you know, the, the industry we work in and the amount we get paid. Like, what would you, like you say, would you rather sit behind a desk and sit there and do, because I've worked in call centres, I've done, I've been a waiter, I've, I've done loads of stuff to get to where I want to be. Um, but like you say, it's being out on the grass, having a ball at your feet, whatever time of day it is just being able to do that and you know provide outside of it as in bills and the fact that someone's paying me to go and coach children is to me it still baffles me I think it's crazy that we can have our passion supported by companies or schools or whatever it's it, it is just amazing um I think being able to interact with children of all ages and even even adults um and share experiences and build relationships again like I touched on earlier the social side of things um now I, I really struggle with social anxiety um especially with new people but you can kind of use football as a tool to build relationships with people and start conversations and being able to do that the amount of people I've met within football you know I've 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 created friends for life just by sharing a pitch with them for an hour and sharing our opinions over a certain session. I've got um, uh, one of my best mates, uh, John Holden. Um, we started working at a company, a school, a school company just over a year ago now. Um, and we only worked together for about three or four months, but we still see each other. We still go get a drink and stuff like that. And it was just because of where we were and the passion that we shared and, you know, it's just amazing what football can provide for you. And like, like you use this podcast to um, inspire new, like new coaches. If that opportunity is there to take a coaching job, even if it's two hours a week, I think 
just do it. I'm sure you agree with that. Just do it and give it a go and just run with it. Um, and looking back on it now, I'm so glad that I did because I get to do. I get to be out on the pitch. I get to interact with people. I get to make new friends and also as well, I get to go to all these amazing new places. I, I, I think of the places football's taken me. I've been to Belgium, uh, Spain, Germany, Scotland, Wales. I've been to all these places which maybe I never would have gone to if I had a, just an ordinary job. Um, and yeah, I just think the, the stuff that football can do for you is just incredible. It, it really, really is. So yeah, that's that's kind of where that's kind of where I sit with that. So there's two avenues here I'd like to go down. So um, we'll go down the first one and come back to the second one. You've mentioned social anxiety. It seems to be a common theme with a lot of coaches, despite maybe the facade of coaches. You're speaking to a group of people. You're always on show. Uh, you're mm. always uh, you don't coaches aren't coaching to be the center of attention. But in lots of ways, you have to take on that moniker where for a long period of time, you are the centre of attention. It's all eyes on you, all ears on you. Um, mm. That tends to go against the personality of most coaches. But it's like the coaching hat goes on and suddenly it, you can almost be a different person. 110%. I totally agree. It, it is, I find it fascinating how most coaches tend to be introverts when they're not coaching. Mm. And you read a lot about how many coaches suffer from imposter syndrome. And when you read about someone who's way higher up the ladder than you think, well, that guy has doubts. Bloody yeah. hell. Just reading the other day about Stephen Reed, my favourite player as a, as a teenager, played at World Cups, played in Premier League. Get that guy struggled mm. with this kind of stuff. I think, damn him and because uh, a, a lot of coaches and players come out same kind of thing it's almost like we're all in the same boat without being able to see each other in, in that sense so uh in in what way do you find that maybe you're different when coaching compared to off the pitch i, I think just that again, like you say, well, that takes us on a few different kind of storylines and journeys. But, you know, as in regards to, you know, my mental health, like you say, it is a massive in, imposter kind of thing because, you know, outside of coaching, I can sometimes struggle to just do daily things because I, I suffer with an anxiety disorder um, and that can make life for me like an absolute living hell. But when I get on that pitch, and my girls are with me and I've got a bag of footballs. I've got a session in mind. It just disappears. Like it's just not for the hour and a half that we're there. It's we're all on the same pitch. We're all equal. We're all the same. We're all here for the same reason. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. And I think you, you, you can, you can, you know, get kind of caught up in these things and, you doubt yourself, oh, is this session going to be good enough? Or after a session, you find sometimes, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, obviously, oh, yeah, like, did that go the way I wanted it to? But I think the way I kind of deal with it is I'm very like my dad. Um, it's just just crack on with it. Just get it done. Don't don't second guess. Just Once you're there, get it set up, get on with it, and reflect on it afterwards. Even if it is the worst session you think you've ever planned, 
just get on the pitch, set it up, run with it, don't second guess it, just just get it done. And I don't mean that in a let's rush it and get it out of the way. Do it to the best of your ability. Even if you've had 10 minutes to plan it on the way home from an after school club or whatever, or you haven't had, you know, the resources that you need, work with what you got, deliver it, be passionate about it. And you've always got to be like a salesman to the players you've got. Even if you don't believe in what you're saying, project it and deliver it like you do know and you do believe in what you're coaching and players will levitate towards your belief and your passion and once it's over then then reflect on it um then sit in the car and think oh my god wow that was that was really not all to be or it could be vice versa that was actually brilliant i didn't expect it to go like that again advice for anyone starting out in the game is just get there get it done plan deliver and learn the, the only time you're ever going to learn and you know is by being on the pitch and the only time you might feel out of your shell is on the pitch because all these players are going to look towards you and look for advice and look for guidance you know, you've got to provide that i think it is again going off going off a bit a, a bit of course here it is it is a difficult you know thing to deal with but like I say, get on the pitch, get it done, and just get lost in it for an hour and a half. I don't know what how, how you're like Will, when you're delivering, but when I'm delivering, I'm not thinking about anything else apart from what's in front of me. And to me, that is, like, I, for, for me personally, that is really, really beneficial. You know, I think it's it's a good, um, for me, it's almost like my safe, my safe place where I can be myself and, you know, be happy and smile whereas sometimes you might not have that um but yeah no i think there's a, there's a, a few things we could go off on again there isn't there but yeah. i'd say in summary with the whole imposter thing you know when people are looking at you get there get it done deliver it to the best of your ability and then reflect on it afterwards i think that's the way i've kind of kind of learned to um to cope with it there's a, a lot of good stuff and it reminds me of the cliche that when you go on the pitch, all your troubles disappear and you just forget life for a minute, no matter what problems might be plaguing you. And that's where you see all across the world, even in some completely desolate areas, football is still that ray of hope. Thing. You look at something, how on earth are you happy? Well, because they're playing football. And while they're playing football, nothing else matters. You talked earlier about uh, how you're quite detailed as a coach and it, it wraps into a few other things too, like how... You said becoming a coach, you are more now into the giving side of things. The best coaches tend to be, maybe to an extent, overthinkers, but also quite empathetic. So you put mm -hmm. the needs of others first and you can read people quite well. You have to be in order to be a coach. But when, <laughs> so we can be very self critical. I've had several bad sessions, or what I felt were bad, or the first couple exercises I didn't think went the way they should have or didn't go as planned or the topic didn't come out that I wanted to work on. But then we've played a decent amount of match time and the kids at the end, that was the best session ever. Like, really? That was awful. That, I, got, <laughs> I got this wrong. The space was too small. There weren't enough repetitions. And they're thinking in their head, all they did was have a game with their friends. And that's yeah. the most important thing. Our goal as coaches should always be, regardless of the level you're working at, do they come back next week? 
Do they go home today smiling? Do they come back next week? And even if you've had a complete nightmare, uh, a session from hell, if you've played a decent amount of match time, the kids are going to love it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we'll beat ourselves up in the car on the way home. The, the kids are going home smiling and laughing because they scored goals and ran around with their friends. And, and yeah, we, we do overcomplicate things because that, that is unfortunately the, the paradox of, of being a coach. The kids have got very simple wants and, and needs. Yeah. And, and we're there almost trying to... I'm not saying for, for a second, I think you can get drawn into some... Uh, Twitter straw man arguments like we're all pet wannabes. Now we, we want to put on a good session. We see a, a session design or we create one and we want to put on a good session because we love football. We love our players and coaches are servants. We mm. serve, we live to serve others. And you think today I've served something that wasn't good enough, mm. but they loved it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we beating ourselves up over this stuff? It, it's a whole lot thing. It's just a really kind of dangerous loop, isn't it, that you can get stuck in. And again, like you say, Will, is the, for me, my attention to detail is just, it's, it's, it's almost OCD. It's, it's nuts. Like, I, I want cones set out a certain way. I want the balls pumped up to a certain pressure. I want all the footballs to be the same. I want all the cones to be the same brand. I want it to look like, like a professional setup. That is just, I think I kind of picked that up from Ricky that I mentioned earlier. I remember when I was doing my first ever PPA lessons and he, I, I always, I'll never forget it. He, um, I think I've been with him for a couple of weeks. Excuse me, my neck is a bit sore after sleeping on it weird. Um, he, turned around, he said to me, he's like, right, turn around and look at your, the area where all the kids' stuff was. I looked at it and now I look at it and think, oh, what an absolute mess. But I turn around and look at it. So oh, yeah, that's fine. But make sure it looks smart. And ever since then, for the last six, seven years, I've got a box where all the drinks goes. I've got a box where all their bags goes. And that's just the detail I go into. But again, like you say, they don't care about that. They're, they're not there because we're professional coaches or because they want to be the next Man City player. Well, they're just there because they want a ball at their feet. And having that kind of 80%, you know, going into FA kind of qualifications here, having that 80% ball rolling time, whether it be a match, a 1v1, a shielding drill, that's all they want. That is all they want. They don't, they're not necessarily too bothered about the detail that you're coaching in, especially at grassroots level as well. They're not too bothered about the detail you're, uh, you're coaching in or essentially even what coaching qualifications you've got. They just want a safe environment where they can make mistakes and like all, all my girls I've been my girls for almost two years now both seasons all of them have re-signed and that tells me that I'm doing something right regardless if like what going back on oh my session was absolutely dreadful but they still left with a smile on their face that's all that matters and especially going through Covid back end of Covid they're all they've all gone up to year seven you know especially from a female point of view you know, football being a male-dominated sport, it can be intimidating. And the time they're going through in their life, the fact that they still come to training every week and they still leave with a smile on their face, to me, I know deep down, as critical as I want to be to myself, I know that I've done something right. And that is something that I'll always be proud of. And any other coaches out there who have something similar to me, 
that is something to be proud of. It, it really, really is because there are, I'm sure you agree, there are so many football clubs in the United Kingdom, especially youth teams. I think we've we've got a uh, a team just down the road who I won't name um, who have got 83 youth teams, which is just ridiculous to me. It, it baffles me. But <coughs> what's stopping what's stopping the, what's stopping your players from going and playing for that team? Nothing. So they come to a practice every week leave a smile on their face and if they've learned something that's even better but if they keep coming back like you say well that is just so 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 important keeping that that prolonged participation is absolutely critical to development on and off the pitch i think so that team having 83 youth teams is very much the american approach yeah you have so many kids playing at your club Look, playing is a great thing. Participation numbers are fantastic, and it's good that clubs can facilitate that. The issue is when it starts to become a bit greedy and when it becomes hoarding players for the sake of hoarding players, because eventually, when those kids graduate to adult ages, some of them will become professional in any given area. So let's say in the Hampshire area, uh, I don't know, four kids per year will go on to be pros. I don't know what the numbers are. I'm just pulling numbers up my ass for the sake of this. Mm. If you, as a club, hoover up 50% of the kids in the area, there's a 50-50 chance you're going to get at least two of those four go on to be pros. When they mm. do, you blast it all over Facebook and say, well, these kids played for us and they went on to be pro. Therefore, you should come play for us too. Next year, your 83 teams become 90 teams because... The parents don't quite realise that they've they haven't fudged the numbers. They've played a numbers game. They've yeah. they've bought more lottery tickets than everybody else, and therefore that they increase their chances of of winning of getting that that kid to become pro. And people fall for it. Unfortunately, in in the US, where kids are paying thousands of dollars a year, it becomes a huge industry where you do get a lot of these snake oil salesmen. You do get a lot of charlatans. Having been away a few times and, and come back, I feel like we can at times. I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to that American model and it's starting to scare me because football should be pure. <laughs> and I think we're, we're losing it. When you've got kids paying uh, 600 quid a year, when you've got the, the use of the word academy being used so liberally. Well, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's any idiot can now set up their own coaching company. And look, setting up your coaching company is, is great because you become, uh, it's great for tax, it's great for insurance and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's when you start using terms like pro and elite yeah. and academy when, now this is just a collection of kids playing with their mates. So this is as far from academy as you can get. Stop trying to swindle parents. It's mm -hmm. not right. Yes, and it, it then makes quite difficult now so i'm facing a dilemma a moral dilemma and i've asked for some guidance for some people with the with the futsal club we do need to set up an academy but do we use that name considering the kids would still be paying to be part of it you're not part of e triple p or whatever there's no professional pathway can we really justify using that word yeah that's the thing isn't it like i remember when i did my level two uh, a couple of years back now um 
uh, one of the mentors, Austin Harris, amazing guy, really, really great coach. Um, and he's been a, he's been in the game way before I was even born. So, you know, he, he mentioned about the these words that clubs use. Um, and even now we're in um, the league we're going into this season. There's a team called, I'm obviously not going to mention them, but da-da-da, elite, da-da-da, development squad. Why are we using these words in grassroots football? It's literally, like you've mentioned, it's a cumulative amount of children who've got together to play football. And every club's entitled to their own way of running things. And you know, with us at Southampton, we want to try and make it as close to an academy feel as possible because, you know, our first team in National League, we want them to have that pathway to go up into a professional team. But we don't label them A team, B team, development squad, elite squad, pro squad. It's a load of garbage. It just it is... It's a false sense of success. Your, your parents go around, yeah, little Timmy, he plays for um, da-da-da elite squad. Oh, okay. Well, are they an actual professional team or are they just a grassroots team? Oh, yeah, it's just a grassroots team. Well, they're not professional then. That is like you've, like you've mentioned, that's as far as you can get from That is the entry level of football is grassroots football. No squad should have that those words attached to their team at all. I just think it is... It's, one, like you say, it's swindling people. Two, it's insulting to the professional game. And three, it can be quite condescending to these children as well because you're giving them a false sense of hope. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I play for, um, blooming, I don't know, the Lion Falcons pro squad. And they're going to go tell all their mates at school, yeah, I play for this pro team. Well, no, you don't. And when they get to this... Um, foundation phase, um, not foundation phase, youth development phase, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. They're going to tell people they play for these pro squads, these elite squads, and blah, blah, blah. And realistically, when you bring it right down, it's just another Sunday little Saturday league team. There's nothing pro about it. It doesn't matter how you put the cones out or how, how hard you pump up the balls. That is a grassroots team. And it will always be a grassroots team unless they attach themselves to a professional club and they get like an actual academy set up. These these words, I'm a strong believer, should not be used in grassroots football. I'm sure you share the same opinion. It it just does not sit right with me. But at the end of the day, as coaches, especially voluntary coaches in the grassroots game, what what can you do? There's not a lot you can do, is there? It would be interesting to see how far down the tyranny you can go and still find words like elite in, in the team. Like, oh, can you get the, at Division Four on the tens, and, and still find some of those words in there. Mm, it's nice. So let's come back and go down the other avenue then. So you mentioned the places you've been able to go due to football. I think you said Spain, Belgium, Germany, yeah. and, and then you were quite proud about having gone to Scotland and Wales. So looking at the, <laughs> wow. I wouldn't put. I don't want to be mean. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't put them on the same level. Yeah. yeah, we're going to, it's going to Germany to watch some football. Right, uh, we're going to Wales. Uh, that's, that's not fair. And I'm I'm being a dick, and I, I shouldn't be. Uh, so, on that, what where do you want to go? What are your career ambitions? Uh, I know you're still young. You're going down lots of different avenues. You don't mm. have to have a straight answer. I think a lot of coaches at your age didn't. What what intrigues you? What what appeals to you? I think. For me, ever since I was a kid, and still to this point where I'm a, a adult now, apparently, yeah, um, 
Yeah, barely. Yeah. Um, I want to be in the pro game. It's it's as broad as that. Whatever the role is, I I want some form of coach or managerial role within a professional setup, whether that be England, I don't know, Taiwan, whatever it is. I want to be working within the professional game and going to new places, meeting new people, watching new coaches, working with elite, you know, level athletes. Um, that is kind of where I'm aiming for. Um, it, it, yeah, it's a long road, don't get me wrong, but like I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, I might find something else along the line and that might be great for me. It might be something totally different, that's fine. But as of right here, right now, for the last six or seven years, every day has been fully committed to wanting to be a professional coach and having not even the title as a bragging right, but the title, I'm a professional coach for this club and this is my full-time job. I don't want to, you know, I, lo I love the school stuff. I love the disabled stuff. But I like to think that those are things which are helping me develop my coaching game and helping me deliver different things. The amount of stuff I've learned in those through the schools, I don't know if you worked in schools, but behaviour management from schools, um, disabled football, different session designs, they've all helped me develop my game, my core, my core part of my coaching kind of image massively. And I'll keep doing those and keep learning from those. But when the time is right and the opportunity does come to go and be a full-time coach at a club, or a full-time manager at a club that's where I want to be that's that's my goal and that is completely what I'm obsessed with doing um and yeah whenever it comes it'll come it'll come but that is that is that is the goal 110% and that leads me nicely onto my next question in order to achieve that you've got to learn certain things so what areas of coaching or football would you like to know more about um <sighs> I think over the last year and a half or so, I've learned so much. I really, really have. Um, and the way I see the game now is completely different to the way I saw it back then. Um, but I, I want to learn more about certain formations, roles and responsibilities in and out of possession, um, the ways certain coaches coach, why they coach like that. I really want to touch into the psychological side of the game as well. I know they cover that in the UA for B, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I think to summarise it as a whole, I just want to learn how I can meet the specific needs of the players that I'm coaching and get the very best out of them. So whether that be a certain CPD on, uh, I don't know, a, a low block or maybe it's a webinar on a high press. I just want to learn about the different phases of the game, the different techniques of defending, the different techniques of pressing and attacking, counter-attacks just the game and its tactics as a whole because I don't think you can ever stop learning as a coach and if you think you've learned everything you're wrong um, and I'm not saying all these things are going to happen within the next year they won't these are things that are going to come up over the next 10 20 years but like I say to summarize it all just just the tactics of the game in and out of possession how to meet players specific needs and really 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 want to dive into the psychological corner as well and learn a bit more about that now I want to move on to some of the stuff that you're doing currently. Mm. You're involved in, in walking football. Probably a lot of people listening won't know what that is. So could you tell us what is walking football and then what are the benefits of it? So walking football is, um, uh, I'd like to summarise it as a safe place where 
I think I think the minimum age is some someone might hold me to this. Most leagues are fifty and over, all the way up to hundred. You can play. Certain leagues can differ with um, different uh, skill sets, maybe different abilities. Um, but on the whole, it's for men and women who are 45 or 50 and over. Um, it's played on a five-a-side pitch. You can have the nine-a-side goals or you can have the long five-a-side goals. Um, mo uh, in a, a lot of different counties, the rules do differ. But on, on kind of, to summarise it, Every game that I've coached so far, I've seen other, uh, other games coached differently. It's free touch. Um, obviously, not allowed to run. Both feet have to be on the floor at all times. Um, you some, some leagues will have a box where only keepers can go in it, so a D. So only keepers are allowed in there. Uh, some leagues might not allow you to pass back to the keeper. Some leagues play below head height, some leagues play overhead height. There's a lot of different rules and ability sets which are used within this game. Um, but to kind of build on the, what you said about why is it good? Why do people play it? Um, I've had a few different um, groups that I've refereed because within walking football, it's not about learning the game. It's about having a safe place to be with your friends and stuff like that. So you almost end up kind of refereeing it. So sometimes I've been there and I've ended up playing as well. Um, I've got one group that I have on a Tuesday who are, obviously I won't mention their names, but they're men, solely a men group who have been either referred to the group by a GP or they've come along with a friend. And it is a low um, ability group where they're just there for a laugh, a joke, and to have fun, because they've all known each other for 30, 40, even 50 years, some of them. So it's, it's non-competitive. They don't keep track of the score. They just go on a pitch for an hour, play the normal standard rules, and enjoy it. Whereas on the other hand, um, obviously mentioning my role in the FA as a community coach, uh, me and my boss, uh, Glenn Braley, um, have been... Uh, running a walking football league on the first Wednesday of every month down at Stone Lane Complex um, and that is competitive so they have I think there's normally eight or ten teams I can't remember we're having a bit of a break through the summer um, but they play like a round robin their games are I think eight minutes long to ten minutes long same as a normal like round robin whoever comes out on top there's no trophy or anything they just say they're the winning group that's it but it's a lot more competitive. Again, what you'll notice if you do, if you were to come down to one, is if they're not playing, they're literally everyone has stood around the pitch, having a laugh, having a joke, and being sociable. So, on 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 the whole, it is just a real kind of safe place where men and women over the age of forty five and fifty can come and just enjoy football. There's no money; no one's getting paid to play. It is pure just enjoyment laughs and just getting out and exercising it's a really 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 good thing to be a part of and you do a lot of work with footballers that have disabilities yeah what have you learned from your time doing this well, i started back in late september of last year um so it's about seven or eight months now i've been doing it um i think this role that I've gained at the FA 
with the, dis the dis uh, disability football has arguably been where I've learned the most out of meeting specific needs for players. So all the sessions we run, we run across Hampshire um, and um, during the week they're open access sessions. So anyone, any disability can attend. So you might have someone who's got Down syndrome, you might have someone who is schizophrenic, but they anyone's allowed to come to this group um, at any venue at any time. There's no commitment to it. It's not like a, a club where we train and play a game on the weekend. There's no, there's no real commitment to it. They come along, they play, and again, it's a safe place. But as in terms of myself, what I've learned from it is, I'm sure you agree with me on this, Will, being a good coach is about adapting and improvising. And with these sessions, I never know how many I'm going to get. I never know what disabilities I'm going to get. I never know how they're going to be when they get there. I can plan the session in as much detail as I want, but it always ends up going a different way because of the nature of the disabled industry. And I love that. I love a challenge. I love being tested and having to adapt my session on the spot. Um, and as we've kind of mentioned meeting specific needs again I don't know what disabilities I'm going to get when they turn up so I might have set a session up for um I don't know say 10 players and I, I'll, I'll know what ones they are because they regularly attend let's say they've got um autism maybe one of them's deaf you know I, I'll set something up roughly for what I know I've got attending but maybe then some people turn up who've got down syndrome or cerebral palsy then I then have to alter that session to make it more accessible for them. And that's kind of um, part of our philosophy is being accessible and making stuff as accessible as possible for all different participants from all different backgrounds and ethnicities. And I think in the last seven or eight months, I've been really put through my paces in trying to make every activity as accessible as possible. If I was to give you an example, um, Let's go with last week, uh, Friday morning session over in Hamble. Um, we've got um, a group of eight or nine who regularly attend. Uh, most of them are uh, autistic or they've got Down syndrome or some sort of learning disability in that. We have one man who comes along on, a, on an off basis, but he is, um, he is a walking frame, so he can't actually kind of kick the ball as well as the other ones can so we normally we normally do a 20 minute activity a little bit of a rival activity and then we play a match really small side of match so for the last six seven months i've been exploring and learning different ways of how to get him more involved because again like i say it's about being accessible and we've we've i found ways of um getting him more engaged by instead of dribbling the ball he can carry the ball instead of passing the ball with his feet, he can pass the ball with his hands. And if he has to stop and stand up off his walking frame and throw it, that's fine because there's no pressure for him to be competitive or be the best there. I've just tried to find the best way as possible to make him feel included and like they're not different because that entirely is the reason why we run those sessions is to make people feel like they can access mainstream football they can access this disabled football they're included that we're, we're being inclusive and like i say over those last seven or eight months i've learned so much about 
not just the players but myself and how I can persevere and be adaptable and improvise and I've even it's even changed parts of my coaching style um going back to my girls at Southampton there's sessions that I've done with them and I know I can take that session and slightly alter it and use it in a disabled session then I do it in a disabled session I think you know what that actually worked really well I'm going to take that from there and go and use it in my girls session and they love it I think um one thing I picked up is normally with the disabled sessions, we finish with like five minutes of fun. It's literally, it can be like a game of rock, paper, scissors, or I don't know, like a little a penalty shootout or something like that. With my girls, we never had that. And starting in this pre-season for the last three to four weeks, I thought, you know what, let's just twist it and let's um, finish with five minutes of fun. And oh my days, they absolutely love it. We've done like piggyback races, uh, wheelbarrow races, and they've absolutely loved it. Whereas sometimes last season, especially in the, the colder months, when we, we'd always finish with a match, and sometimes the girls, because there's a stage they're out at school, if they're on the losing team, then some of them get a little bit upset. I don't like that. I don't like to leave a session on a bad note. So, like I say, what I've learned through disabled football has helped me benefit my core coaching again. And I think that is, it's, it's just critical. And again, this goes back to talking about new coaches. If you get an opportunity to do something like disabled football or blind football, walking football, whatever it is, just do it because it is, it can help your coaching game massively. I never thought when I was uh, 16, 17, picking up cones at our school clubs that I'd be doing disabled football or walking football, but I'd do it. And it's wicked. And again, it's building up that portfolio and that CV of what experience have you got? Where have you been? What have you done? And some of the stuff that the places it's taken me, again, I'll go off a bit off track here, but we had um, the Euros Roadshow um, down at West Quay a few weeks back. Um, I got asked to come along there and support that with the blind football session that we ran. Anyone could join in. So I actually saw some of that. Did you? Um, yeah, I caught the tail end of it. I got a, a picture with the trophy that I wasn't allowed to touch. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was good. Um, but I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I didn't go and take those jobs. And that that year as well, was absolutely wicked. I got to meet Farah Williams. I got to meet um, Katie. I can't remember what her last name is, but she's a um, 16-year-old uh, disabled footballer. I got to meet Darren um, England as well. Some amazing people that I never would have met beforehand and being able taking those those jobs and those opportunities by the scruff of the neck and really committing to them has got me to where I need to be so like I say again with those new coaches starting out if you're listening to it listen to this podcast if something like that does come up just throw yourself out and, and just give it a go. We're getting a lot of very similar themes in, in these answers about how football is about inclusion it can be an escape from your problems uh, and it can also be a vehicle to take you on these these journeys. So you've met people you didn't think you'd meet. You've gone to places you didn't think you'd go, and you've experienced things that you didn't know you could experience. And so it's well, whatever it is that you're doing in regards to football, these pillars keep popping up. Now, mm. uh, if we're thinking about kids and their involvement in sport with these ideas in mind 
what do you think are some of the challenges that kids face uh, these days regarding access to sport? That's a, a really good question, Will. Um, you know, working within schools um, and working with the FA, this is, you know, a discussion that comes up a lot. Um, and, you know, the, the, there's many factors to limiting accessibility. It could be financial, it could be home life, it could be certain needs that they've got that clubs that are local to them can't fulfil. Um, and, you know, we could sit here for days and talk about this, but I think m massively, especially if I was to talk from a female game point of view, is social media um, and the use of mobile phones is limiting access for children massively because of the stuff that they see, the messages that they may receive, the things that people may say. You know, these are all things that, you know we don't see that can maybe knock the confidence or stop that inspiration of going to go and give it a go you know they might have the financial support they might have a club 30 second walk from them if they're getting messages over social media you know they're not going to want to participate for example i've got a go in my team who i've taken on in the last few weeks um and she's absolutely incredible football player and I'm not just saying that because she's one of my girls she's a great football player um she left uh, a team that I won't mention um but she left because she was getting bullied in the team and she's a girl again year seven she's not very confident um and she's got signs of autism as well and she was saying she told me the other day uh, her and her dad told me that the girls in our team were like photoshopping her onto images, like inappropriate images and taking the mickey out of her, sending her horrible messages. And, you know, I think a lot of that goes under the radar and we don't even realise because of the accessibility that we've got to that information. And she, she said to me, her dad said to me that when they came to us, it's the last club that they come for. And if it didn't go well, that they were just going to, she was going to give up the football. And for me, my, 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 one of my, my main things that I pride myself on is long-term participation and making sure, especially, you know, not just my girls, but all players stay in the game as long as they can. And, you know, the fact that that's happened to her, that, that really obviously upset me. But, you know, look at the bigger picture. She's not going to be the only one who that's happened to. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of boys, girls, people who identifies something else that receive hate on social media and that can be a massive massive effect um but like i say there's there's so many things we can sit here and talk about but those main kind of things for me is like say financial um uh, social media and again where do they live how far away do they how far away do they live to um where they need to be we've got one girl you know, under 14s, who comes from, I can't remember where she is, but they, her and her dad drive an hour to come and train with us because there's just, they've got no girls football in the area they live in. And for me, especially if someone, you know, being part of the FA, that it doesn't sit right with me that they've not got something accessible on their doorstep. You know, we're, we are essentially the home of football in England. We've got the Premier League, we've got the Women's Super League, we've got massive, massive disability leagues. 
why is there something which isn't right there on their doorstep? Why is that not accessible for them? And yeah, you know, she, she's a she's a young girl. There's a lot less. This is a proven fact. There's a lot less girls teams than there are boys teams. But there's not even a boys team for her to join. So why is that not there? What 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 needs to change to make that accessible for them? And I think we'd be all of us as coaches and people outside of coaching, if we saw the figures and the stats of people who physically cannot access football or another sport. I think we'd be absolutely shocked, like absolutely blown away. The amount, not just the amount who can't take part, but the amount who want to take part but physically can't. You, know, you can't expect a ten-year-old to drive himself to training, can you? You can't expect an eighteen-year-old who, I don't know, has is low in, uh, earning below, you know, a good income. You can't get on the train because they can't afford it to get to training. Where where do we jump in and where do we help? It's it's a real. I think if you found the answer to that question, mate, you you earn a lot of money very quickly because it is a very very hard topic. So what you said about that <clears throat> that girl being bullied by her by her peer group is quite sombering. So I was bullied at school, and I'm quite thankful that in the late '90s and the early 2000s we didn't have the technology to do this stuff. So I'd finish school and go home and at least I would get several hours worth of rest in between the bullying. Now with, with, the, with social media, it can continue after school. It can continue throughout the school holidays. And that, that's, that's sad. And when you said that she, your, your club was the last one she went to. And uh, if, they weren't, if they didn't like it there, then they'd be done for football. Again, you... <laughs> You don't ever want to be a kid's last coach. And mm. um, I think not enough coaches realise that. But on the one hand, it's great that you've got the environment and you're able to facilitate that and, and make her feel welcome. It's also sad that she couldn't find that in other places. Uh, that This should be the norm, shouldn't it? Yeah, 100%. You should just feel accepted and welcome everywhere. And I've had that with teams where players so this place is really really friendly and everyone's really nice this is so weird but it shouldn't be should it it, it should be the blanket experience of participating in sport and that people aren't dicks you, you, there should be far less teams uh with, with, yeah. with that kind of dicketry going on you, you, look at, you look at the amount of teams who fold because of the way the coaches run the team that season and it's not been what the parents wanted or the kids wanted, you know, that team who have got 83 teams, again, won't mention their name. No one knows how many teams they folded, but I used to coach for them and I used to play for them. I know that. I know exactly how many teams have folded there. I won't mention the number, but it's a criminal amount, like a criminal amount. And you've got to ask yourself why. There's too many teams. It's too saturated. And if you have lower quality teams with poor environments, coaches who aren't experienced or qualified, Kids are going to turn around and go, why do I bother? When they get to the age of 15 and 16, oh, why don't I just go out and party tonight? Or why don't I go do this and do drugs or go and whatever? You know, football is used, should be used as a safe place to keep children occupied, to keep them busy, keep them safe. It definitely was for me. Like, I, I, I can sit here and proudly say that I've, I've never once done drugs in my life. Because I've, not because I don't want to, obviously, obviously I don't want to, but I've, not, I've never had that, that, opportunity to think you know what I'm bored 
uh, I don't want to play football anymore. I'm going to go and do this instead. I've always had a club to be part of, to play and be busy. And then not not just on the pitch, but I've built mates there that we go and spend time together outside, you know. And I just don't think nowadays, like, there's not as much as that. It, there, re there really isn't. And it's sad. And again, building on the bit where you said about players coming into environments which are good environments and finding it weird with that girl, um, that new girl who came along, the one who got bullied, when we were doing the races at the end, she turned around to me and she's like, why are we doing this? I was like, what do you mean why are we doing this? Because obviously I, I'm with my girls, this is the norm, like you said, the norm, that's how it is, no less. I was like, because it's fun? And she was like, oh, okay. We normally finish training with running where I was. I was like, really? These are 12 year olds, mate. I was like, really? She, yeah. And she, she didn't know what to do. She was completely baffled that we were just doing something for a laugh and just finishing with fun. And that, for me, I was just sad. I was like, like uh, how, how far off are we where we need to be? Because, you know, all the club, all the teams, we, we have four or five youth teams in our club. That's it. Because that's all we, you know, we're trying to get more because we want to keep building, but we don't want to have too much. We want to have a good number where we can stay as a community. We can all stay in contact. All, all, I know almost all the girls' names from all the teams because I give up my time and that's what I do. I go and socialise and make myself known. But if you've got 83 teams, it ain't going to work. It's as simple as that. You know, if we've got a short amount of teams, every single train session we know is going to be of a quality and a standard which is more than acceptable. You know, you take yourself down to where these other guys train or I don't know somewhere over in Basingstoke or what you can almost guarantee I'd say maybe five or six times out of ten the session is so far off it to where it needs to be and that again we could go down five or six avenues about are the FA doing enough courses are they providing enough CPD are our clubs taking on too many teams where they can't fill coaches with those teams are they putting in dads just because they need someone to run the team? Are they doing enough? Like, are, the, are the club doing enough um, CPD with their coaches? You know, as a club down at Southampton, we we regularly attend CPD events. I don't know if you saw on Twitter or not with me. You know, just in this year so far, I've already done, you know, six hours of voluntary CPD because I want to and I want to keep learning. But not just me, all the coaches from our youth setup have gone and attended those CPDs because that's where we want to be. That's the standard we strive to have. But when I've been to CPDs, there's never more than 12 or 13 people there. And there's more than 12 or 13 clubs in Hampshire. So yeah, some, 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 something needs to change, something needs to happen. Again, billion dollar question where if you knew the answer to it, you'd be very rich, but that's where I kind of sit with that. My own opinion on that is I don't believe enough coaches are intellectually curious. You mentioned before about you can't be a coach that thinks you know it all. And you find there are several coaches who find their level and become uh, like kings of their, their domain. And in my spare time, well, I haven't done it for months because I can't run, but uh, I referee in between coaching games and it'd be something like Portsmouth under 15s, Division 1. And 
yeah, some kind of top of the table clash between under 15s. And the, the coach is looking at me saying, well, the coaches are often surprised when I turn up because they're used to either teenagers they can bully or yeah. old people that can't keep up with play and can't see anything. So they see I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, <laughs> I'm big enough and ugly enough to actually um, to come back. I, I had an incident uh, start of the season where I actually snapped and called a dad a wanker. Because he just would not shut up. Uh, yeah. I think there was some kind of, uh, like, I think his kid might have been fouled, but I've given the advantage. And the, his, the team's gone on down the left wing, creating an attack. And this dad is still, he's been gone on all game, but he's still, Ref, aren't you going to come back and book it? And, and I told him, uh, I thanked him for his opinions <laughs> and suggested he keeps them to himself. Yeah, and he right. kept going and I'm, I'm trying to get the game restarted and he's still going and I'm like excuse me boys I, I've got to go deal with uh, I started calling parents who make suggestions to referees I started calling them referee assessors because I need to go have a word with the with the assessor mm. and I'm trying to talk to him calmly and politely and he keeps shouting and interrupting so I raised my voice and I said it's mm. wankers like you why referees are quitting yeah, you don't so see, you don't see people like me turn up and referee youth games, do you? Mm. And and he's, oh, 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 calm down, calm down. You can't say things. You've been given it all game, mm. and I have given one thing back to you, yeah, and it, it turned down. into like mass confrontation. Parents are getting involved. Coaches are having to pull the parents back. Parents are now trying to fight each other, and people say, "Well, you probably should have kept your call." I've kept my call for 16 years. I've been assaulted twice as a referee. Uh, look, every human's got their breaking point, and even someone as calm and chilled out as me, because I am sick and tired of yeah. every weekend seeing games going without referees. I am sick and tired of seeing the the, the dropout numbers every year. Teenagers who quit refereeing within weeks. And I bring up this example a lot. In, in Missouri, I had a 14-year-old player who she had qualified as a referee. Um, they usually make you do a few lines before you go and do a middle. Uh, that, that's not a drug reference, by the way, Carl. <laughs> so she, yeah, she's doing a, a line, and I'm on the pitch nearby, so I walk over to watch about 10, 15 minutes into the game, sneak up behind her on the touchline. How's it going? She's already crying, red faced tears. Oh, Think, oh. what's going on? These grown adults have made a, a teenage girl cry because they're upset over a throwing or it's an so, and so. People always say things like, well, we need to increase the, the quality of referees. No, we don't. We need to increase the level of human decency. It doesn't okay. matter. Look, referees make mistakes, but on top of that, more often than not, referees aren't actually making a mistake. You're just seeing it through your rose-tinted yeah. glasses. And even recently, I hate to go into to games in person, yeah. when you sat way up at the top of the stand and the person next to you is telling you the linesman who's 70 yards away from us got it wrong. Right? Yeah, uh, You're telling me the professional who trains at this stuff daily, who is yeah. a good quarter of a kilometre closer to the play than <laughs> we are, who is paid a lot of money to be good at their job. Yeah. You in, in your 50s with, with your 
with your poor eyesight who was half glancing at your phone, you have the audacity to shout at this individual and tell them that they're wrong. Oh, bloody hell. So anyway. <laughs> it's, it's so poor, mate, honestly. I mean, I remember I went, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a Liverpool fan and obviously, you know, giving up my weekends for grassroots stuff, it's impossible to go see them play. Um, so my, my dad used to work down at Saints for a good 10 or 12 years. So he's still got good ties with the club and he always managed us to get, get us tickets for the Saints-Liverpool game. Um, I remember my girls are training that night, so I just shoot straight from from there to the to St Mary's. I'm like beaming over, beaming through Southampton at a million miles. I'm trying to get there. I got there, and sat down, probably about a minute and twenty seconds late. Literally within the first five minutes of the game, I've got some absolute moron behind me. Where have you not seen that? Where have I'm just sat there like, mate, you're in a sit, you're in a, you're, you're in a stand with about thirty thousand odd people. He ain't going to hear you from the way up here. And even if he could, I don't think your opinion really matters that much. Just shut up. And it's for the full 90 minutes as well. And you say, like, I've paid to come and sit here and watch this. I've got to deal with this absolute melon behind me, screaming and effing and blinding in front of children as well. It's just, it's, I literally, I think I had a, like a six-year-old sat next to me. I've got this geezer, beer in the hand, sausage roll in, in the other hand, going at this referee for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And, it just baffles me. You know, you know I, I, I'd be lying if I say I'm not guilty of having a go at referees sometimes. But, you know, as a coach, it can be difficult because you get caught up in the game and, you know, you're so passionate for it. But I've never, ever sworn at a referee or walked on a pitch and got physical and up in their face. I've maybe said, oh, ref, really? Well, but at some point, everyone's guilty of that. But like you say, you know, I've never been at a point where I felt that I've guilty of making a ref drop out. But I've I've had we've played teams this season with parents, and I've just said like, how can you physically bring yourself to a game of children's football and confidently stand there in front of your child and swear and abuse a fifteen-year-old? Like it is just it is so poor. It is what so went wrong in your life that you got to this point? Yeah, it's it's, it's shocking. I've I've had one dad in my team and um, we were losing 5-0. Friendly, we're not results driven. I don't believe that that's what you football should be about. It should be about development of the player and the team. And it was like 5-0. He walked, walked behind me and he's like, oh, I can't watch any more of this. And I was like, really? Your daughter is playing a sport. Stand there and watch her and just enjoy it. And he's like, oh, I can't believe we're losing. Like, Man, Get a grip, seriously. Like, and he came came back at the end of the game. I think the ref made a bit of a crap decision. And he was having a go at the ref after the game. I was like, mate, just shut up. Please just shut up and just walk away. Because if you continue, you ain't coming back and you're not watching your daughter again this season. It's not happening. We don't we don't do referee abuse, we don't do parent coaching, and we don't do shouting at any point. It but again, that's just me and that's just my team. It's got to be a norm throughout all the teams. We had one parent in the age group above who had 39 reports against him from referees. Which is just absolutely abysmal. So obviously we removed him from the club. Um, he had to go and attend anger management, uh, CPDs and stuff like that. I just sat there just like, 
really. The thing is now that he is going to be, he'll be blacklisted and any team that he tries to go and join, they won't let him and his daughter join because they know what he's about. Parents, parents and players come as a package. You either have, they're both, both really good or one's bad and one's never. I can deal with a bad child because of the background I've got and the years I've done in school. I can deal with a bad child and I can straighten them out and make sure that they're at the standard they need to be. But a bad parent's a different story. If a parent is affecting their child and the rest of the child, rest of the children's development, they need to be gone. There's just there's no room for it, especially for the young referees' point of view as well. There is there is no no room for it at all. It is completely unacceptable. And again, eyes are on the FA for you know what are they going to do about it. I don't have anything to do with it because I'm a coach, thankfully. But people ask me all the time, like, what 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 are you guys going to do about? referee situation I don't know I'm just a coach like but I, I completely sit here and agree you know regardless if the FA hear this or whatever something needs to be done and so it, I say this to everyone something awful is going to have to happen for something massive to change and whether that's you know like a really bad injury or like a god forbid a fatality something awful always has to happen before there's change every time I, I think I disagree there. You reckon? Uh, yeah, because I think I've my, my perspective on life has changed significantly in the last few years and how we're living through catastrophic events almost on a daily basis now and nothing's changing. So if we compare it to, and I'm, look, I'm fairly open about my political stance uh, regarding the United States. My mm. political stance is extreme. Kids should come home alive from school. 100%. I know some people disagree with that, funnily enough, that there's always a but. So when you've got war zone numbers of homicides, mm. almost on a daily basis in some cases, in schools, and nothing changes, I think what's, what's more extreme than dead children? So nothing happens. So... Coming to the referee example, yeah, we've had loads of really bad incidents, and the worst, you, the most that happens is a, a token gesture. You yeah. get respect armbands, uh, little things, and nothing really changes because it's a fundamental flaw in society. Yeah. You're looking now. I mean, I'm, I don't want to get all all nihilistic about this kind of stuff, but I think what's the point in having kids when we've only got about fifty to hundred years left as a planet anyway? Mm. <laughs> so, um, I know that's quite dark but it's just all the time bad stuff is happening mm. things don't change because what happens is it it moves the line of what we tolerate so now with, with the petrol prices it's not going back to what it should be and no. we're now going to be stuck at near two quid a litre for the foreseeable future and it's only going to get worse and what's happened is we've gone well, yeah, I suppose I, I can make make do. I can, you know, I can change my habits. We should be rioting in the street. We mm. we should be, uh, fun enough, ironically, burning buildings using that very same expensive fuel. So with, with referees, there have been assaults. There have been deaths. There have been all sorts of uh, homophobic, sexist, racist incidents, and because. As, as humans, we're, we're programmed to take the path of least resistance. 
So mm. we always go down. The, the, what's the easiest thing to do? All right. Well, we'll we'll make a public apology. We'll do a half-assed investigation, and we'll slap a ban on that one individual that caused that one problem. The reason why there's referee abuse and assaults is because as a society, we are fundamentally flawed in several ways. Addressing those flaws is quite difficult. So instead, we keep our heads down. We hope and pray that nothing bad happens to referees. And when it does, we don't, we're not up in arms. We move the needle ever so slightly. So the change is, unfortunately, it's, it's gradual, if at all. I think that's just sadly human nature. I wish I could be more optimistic. I've seen lots of very good initiatives that are starting to help, but I see the same mistakes being made year on year, generation after generation. I've been around now long enough to have seen several cycles, and I think you say that it needs something big to happen. There's been several big things that have happened, and we've We've just not changed one bit, and that unfortunately is human nature. Sport reflects society. Parents ask me all the time, like almost. I think we had a ref maybe four or five times this season, and they've been people that I know because I've asked them to come and do it. But parents ask me, oh, "Why have we not got a ref this week? Why is someone's dad?" We've one of my girls, um, her dad uh, Ben. Luckily, he used to referee, so we haven't got a ref. He'll step on, but. You know, he should be able to stand there and watch his daughter play football, not be running around yeah. on a Saturday morning at 9am. You know, he, he, he's a massive businessman. He's up at five in the morning going to Manchester every day. You know, he, same as all of us, we all work and, you know, have to earn money. You know, that, that should be his time to stand back and watch and enjoy it. You know, my assistant coach, John, who's... um. Who's just left me? Um, sometimes he had to stand in and referee the game because we've got to do what we've got to do. He should have to stand back and watch and coach with me. He's he's quite a quite new to the game and coaching. Um, he needs to stand back and learn and develop and watch. We can't because we haven't got anyone to run the line or we haven't got anyone to ref the game. Yeah, so which I I just don't know. It's uh, again. Like I said, for the fifth time, this this podcast, it's a billion-dollar question. Yeah. You know? Let me make two very quick points about, about refereeing, and then I'll ask you the last couple of questions, because I know you, you've been generous with your time. You've got lots of coaching to do today. So <laughs> I think a lot of it comes from a point of view of ignorance. Mm. In 2019, I was at the Gold Cup in, in the USA, a game in Kansas City. and. Yeah. That was about the time. Do you remember the 2018 World Cup? They changed a lot of the rules in football, the kickoff rule and goal kick rule and all that kind of stuff. Substitutes get to leave the pitch on the nearest point in the field. And so this stuff has been going around for a year. Uh, and I think Women's World Cup had also recently happened too. Mm. I'm watching the USA men versus Panama. I've got this really angry dad behind me just shouting nonsense all the time at the USA men. And the Panama goalkeeper takes a short goal kick to his centre-back who's only a couple of yards away inside the penalty area. Dad stands up, starts screaming at the referee how you can't receive the ball in the box from a goal kick. No one around him is, is challenging this. I'm thinking, all right, it's early in the game. He's just got it. Perhaps he's forgotten the rule changing. 
there's a surely the guy to be that angry about football he must care about football to a large degree and therefore if he cares about football to a large degree he is probably quite up to date on football keeps going all throughout the game the both teams are now receiving goal kicks inside the box dad is going crazy he's he's saying to people you can't do that the referee's stupid and his kids are getting involved uh, I could be a better referee than this. And it was about seven minutes into the game. He said it again. I said, uh, mate, uh, they changed the rule. Oh, did they? Yeah, about a year ago. Yeah, you can do that now. Oh, right. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I've been hearing you for 70 minutes not know that. I mean, <laughs> you you paid good money to bring your family here and you're you're so agitated by the game. How, how do you get this upset without mm. caring enough? Because women's football is huge in the US. They all watch the Women's World Cup. These rules were, were, were in place in that tournament. And it, people still, this idiot, there's a lot of people still don't know, but I, for about 18 months after that rule change, I was still having parents and coaches shout at me as a referee when someone received a goal kick in the box and several other ones as well. But when it comes to referee treatment, because of my calm friendly nature uh, as a person as a coach is that I've developed relationships with referees where I know that we're now starting to get the benefit of the doubt if my player does a yellow card or borderline yellow card offense the referee will often swing it our way in that the player will get away with it or particularly in in futsal there's a lot of infringements referees are very hot on uh, one of them being um, well subs the player has to leave the court through the gate and the player can't come on until the entire player before them is completely off the court. And because we don't rip on the referees, because we're not shouting, because we're not up their ass for every decision, we talk to them like humans. We have a laugh and a joke and then my player does something a bit silly and the referee kind of shrugs their shoulders. Oh, well, benefit of the doubt. And I know that had we been on that referee's case, maybe they would have nailed us. Uh, and the referees will have conversations before. And I watched your game last week. You're unlucky. really like the way you do these things. And we'll have proper conversations because referees are human beings. They love football as much as everybody else. I know that that's not the perception. They often say things like, oh, the referees are the, the weak and scrawny kids that got yeah. last. And so they hate football. And now they just want to rule everyone. That's got to be the most alpha male bollocks I've ever heard <laughs> and, and people who say that are just they're, they're so so wrong that right. I think they're incapable of understanding how wrong they are the vast majority of referees that I've, I've met are actually obsessed with football to the point where it's likely unhealthy yeah so yeah you win more friends with with uh, with honey than you do with vinegar and yeah, be nicely referees because it's the right thing to do anyway but also you can maybe get some benefits from your team. So let me finish off with these last couple of questions then if, you, if you've got a few minutes spare for us. Sure. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, let's talk about school sport. Mm. If you could make school sport better, what would you change? I had a good think about this one. Um, one thing I know people will definitely disagree with it it's very it's quite quite an opinionated controversial topic but from a coach's you know football point of view 
for me in schools, A teams, B teams, C teams, or first teams, second teams, first teams, should not be a thing. Don't agree with them. I just think it creates ignorance or destroys confidence. I just don't think that it should work. I think the way it should be done is you have a mix of kids and, you know, put one's, whatever sport it is, say in cricket, one's driving ahead, another one's falling a little bit behind. Put them together, let them work together, let them bounce off each other, create an environment where it's safe to make mistakes. It's not results driven. Um, I saw one of my, one of my girls, um, she had a cricket tournament last week and she got put in the B team and they went and won the tournament and the A team lost. And, you know, what, what, just proves the point, why do we need A teams and B teams when the players who you deem as weaker players are still just as capable? What age groups are you talking about here? This is, I'd, I'd say, all the way up to under 18s. I just don't think in that youth development phase or foundation phase, I don't think that there should be A team, B team, like you say, elite squad, development squad. Doesn't It doesn't sit right with me in any sport. I, I get it. Someone made a counter argument that you have it in academic classes like maths and English. Again, I can't really speak from that point of view because you know I'm not. I've got a degree in teaching. Uh, you know, P, uh, P. Sorry, maths, English, history. I've got a masters and all that, so I can't speak from that perspective. But if we're looking at through the microscope of just PE, I think to get the most out of your children and to get them to learn about their physical literacy as much as possible, they need to be mixing with players of different abilities and from a psychological point of view, how is little Timmy, who's in the C team and always gets picked last, going to get any better if one, he's always picked last, two, he's not getting any challenge against stronger players, and three, he's not getting any opportunity to play in any matches? Because more or less all the time, especially when I was at school, the A team would always have more games than the B team because they were the better team. So they'd always go to the tournaments. The B team would get left at school. How are these weaker players at any sport can it ever develop if they're not getting the opportunity and how does that affect their their mental health how does that because that certainly affected me when I was at school if I got told that I wasn't playing or I was staying at school today and all my mates would go off and do whatever it made me feel like crap it made me feel like I wasn't good enough I wasn't worth it one of my one of my girls was um she did athletics she was told that she wasn't good enough to do it by a teacher. It just doesn't sit right with me. I think all children deserve opportunity, regardless of what ethnicity, what background, what bitter they've got. Children are never going to get better or learn if they haven't got equal access and opportunities as each other. I just that's where I kind of sit with that. I think because that that's how we run it at Southampton. We haven't got an A team and a B team. We haven't got an elite squad or a development squad. We don't believe in that. Everyone needs an equal opportunity to develop, learn, make mistakes, just try new things. And like I said, again, that dynamic of putting players who are further ahead than others, how are, I think I mentioned already, how are the ones who are falling behind ever going to learn if they're not playing with the ones who are further ahead than them? Because they've got no way of picking anything up. It's that's kind of where I sit with that. It's a really, it, it's a really, really frustrating topic, and it's one of the things that really gets on my nerves. But 
again, I'm not the uh, the head of education in Britain, so there's not a lot I can do about it, but that's kind of where I kind of stand with that. What you said alludes to the multiplier effect. You create an arbitrary selection process, you know, just determine, right, these kids are A, these kids are B, and it could be based on what you think is, uh, well, a more talented kid now, and it's simply because this 13-year-old is nearly six foot because they fit a growth spurt. This 13-year-old still looks like a 10-year-old. Yeah. So you, you separate them, and then you give the A group better coaching, more training sessions, more competitive games. Three, four years later, of course, the A group are better because you gave them the resources. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not because you identify talent. It's because you separated these kids simply by who developed earliest, and then you gave them far more resources if you treat kids like uh like flowers for a terrible analogy uh, you've decided that this half of the flowers get two hours of sunshine a day and yeah. half a cup of water and you decided that the other they get 10 hours of sunshine a day and they get 10 cups of water well of course they're going to grow more yeah. silly so i think there's a lot of validity in what you said and i it, there are some people that are being brave and exploring with these issues and uh, I think we need to be more open to that kind of thing because it's socially and psychologically it's so beneficial as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Final two then, We've, oh, you've mentioned a lot your girls at, at Salanta Women, you're with the under 13s aren't you? Yeah. Okay, what kind of challenges do you face uh, within your role? Wow, they're uh... They're, di they're a difficult group. Absolutely hate coaching. No, I'm joking. And they're they're amazing. Um, they are just they're fantastic. All of them are incredible individuals. And I say to them all the time, I, I I love all of them. And I don't mean that in a weird way. I just absolutely love spending time with them because they make me feel like I'm 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 worth something as well. And I hope I give that back to them. But you know. As amazing as they are, you know, every, every group comes with its own challenges and it's important, again, going back to coaches who are new to the game, every group you coach is going to have its own difficulties and its own unique way of challenging yourself. Um, and this is kind of, over the last two to three months, a challenge I've been faced over rotations. Um, and I'm not too sure how familiar you are with it. And that's not me trying to be rude or insulting, but um, rotations of positions and their long-term development. What, when do I rotate them? How long do I rotate them for? What are the percentages of how long do they play in this position? How long do they play in that position? How is it affecting their development? Is it affecting their development? And how do we deem success in this rotation programme? So... I've kind of looked at it and again I'm I'm so lucky with the coaches that I know I've got incredible access that other coaches wouldn't have to academy coaches because purely because of the people I've grown up with and the people I know and you know originally we were doing two weeks in one position two weeks in another position two weeks in another position so they're changing every two weeks to a separate position so let's say they start at centre back then they go play centre midfield then they go play striker, then it resets, blah, 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 blah. And over the course of the season, and I really stress this point because it's quite important, we are not results-driven. 
we don't want to win. And not sorry, it's not that we don't want to win. Our goal is not to win the league. Our goal is not to win trophies. It is about their long-term development on and off the pitch as players and as human beings, young and as young women. I found over the course of the season that this rotation programme that we were running wasn't as effective with my girls as it was with our under other 13s because of the characters and the players that they are. My group are a lot quieter, a lot more introverted and will only speak to you and be themselves if they know and they trust you. Whereas this other group, very outgoing, very aggressive, take everything by the scruff of their neck and they are just bang, 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 in your face, everything. And again, I haven't got a problem with that because my girls, my girls have always been my girls. I wouldn't change them for the world. But it took a lot of kind of reflecting over the last two, three months to think, okay, this isn't working with us. What can we do to try and change it? How is it going to be more effective? And we're currently working on a new rotation plan with individual development plans with a primary position and a secondary position. So a primary position where they've, not, not where I think they're the best, but where they look most comfortable so they can gain that confidence because my group are a bunch which are quite low on confidence because of, again, the rotations that we were doing, they were too much. And um, again, not results driven, but results and goals build confidence. And confidence, I'll always say, is almost my motto, confidence doubles ability and development it always does so our confidence throughout the season was just like just in pieces and I'm frantically trying to put these pieces back together um so we've been looking over it the last kind of few weeks primary position that's where they're most confident that's where we're going to get the best of them and they might not play that position when they get to adult football but this is where the secondary position comes in secondary position is used for purely development so, for instance, I've got a girl called Polly. Polly is really good, really good attacker. Um, she's really good with the ball at her feet, but she needs to work at her... Um, oh, hello, dog. She needs to work on her left foot a little bit more, and she needs to work at her defensive responsibilities that more. So her secondary position might be a left-back or a left-wing-back. So we're still figuring out the percentages of how much we play them in their primary, how much we play them in the secondary. But that's the kind of challenge you face. Not, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one who faces it, but how much do you rotate? How much do you not so prioritise um, winning, but uh, where, where, where do we draw the percentage line of rotation over seeing a game out and getting like a one nil victory? Because how much does that mean to them in the short term? over the long term so you're kind of looking at that long-term development and that short-term development because you know nowadays with phones and stuff like that everything is instant for these kids they can if they want a pair of shoes they can go on their phone they can buy a pair of shoes in a minute so how does that affect their patience for development like they look at your ellen whites your lucy bronze well they're that good now why can't i be that good right now so it's it's finding that balance of that rotation program that we're trying to come up with whilst still prioritizing development and making sure we can prepare them for the adult game but also trying to build that confidence back up and building that team spirit building that culture trying to get them to go out there and believe in themselves because i've heard over the last few months 
obviously, you know, they speak in between each other and they think I can't hear them, but I can. Um, and they're like, oh, we're going to lose this game. Oh, we've lost this game. It's not even started yet. And oh, I was 2 0, we've lost. And for me, that, that makes me quite upset because it makes me feel that like I'm failing them. And I don't ever want to be a results driven coach because that is not what it's about. But they deserve to win. They deserve to get results. They deserve to score goals because that will double their ability and that will double their confidence. So, in summary, will the kind of challenge we're facing at the moment is the percentage of the rotation and the, the scoreline and how are we all going to make it gel together? And it is a it's a really, really big task. It, it really is. It's very time consuming. And, you know, parents always say, like, oh, yeah, oh, thanks for running the team season. I'm sure it takes a lot of time. That's an understatement. It takes hours upon hours upon hours of reflection on the pitch, off the pitch, having little conversations with players after sessions, making sure IDPs are up to there. There is so much that goes into it. But that that is going to be kind of my main kind of challenge this season is figuring out the percentage of development and results and not so much results, but winning um, and seeing how that's going to affect us. Because, you know, I sit here right now in... Was it? Is it July or is it June? July, isn't it? July. We might get to September, and that might have completely changed. We just don't know. But that is going to be a massive challenge, and it is making me anxious just sat here thinking about it. But again, like I say, with my philosophy, take it by the scruff of the neck, and we'll, we'll run with it and see what happens. I think there's uh, two, let's say, extreme ends of a spectrum where we often view winning and, and development as two different ideas. Whereas I th think there's a lot more overlap than we, than we necessarily believe. So development leads to winning eventually down the line. Our goals and ambitions as youth coaches are always about the player of tomorrow. So we are paying it forward. We're, we're working with kids in front of us so that we can make them good players when they're 18, when they're 25, when they're 30. That, for me, is the win. Are they still playing when they're that age? Are they still enjoying it? Are they still good? That's always okay. the, the long-term ambition. Now, in the short term, there's plenty of lessons that come from winning. So let's say your club philosophy is we have to play 4-3-3, high-press, possession, build out the back, all that kind of stuff. Again, now we're winning this game 2-1 with 15 minutes to go, and that will not win us the game. Because the way that we're playing, the way the opposition are playing, if we stick to our philosophy, we, we lose. So you get your, your time out or your, your break or whatever it is, you get the kids in, okay, kids, how are we going to win this game? And they then look at it and say, well, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to lose because we're giving the ball away and because they're creating these chances. Okay, great. So how do we mitigate against that how do we prevent them from having the ball how do we and the kids say, well if we press here and don't press here if we change our shape this so you involve the kids in a learning process and the kids will then come up with some of the answers which you, you would potentially guide and facilitate so for the last 15 20 minutes whatever it is you might play a different way that goes against your club philosophy and it's not to win the objective isn't to win the objective is to teach kids how to adapt to win. Well, I think uh, because coaches like to 
to make issues binary because it's easier to argue on Twitter if it's black versus white. Yeah. Whereas I think one of the best things that I've heard over the years from clubs I work with is you follow the club philosophy 80, 90% of the time, but winning is a lesson. So if, if the game is tight and you can teach the kids a lesson, include, don't dictate and say, right, this is how we win the game, do this. It's the game's pretty tight. What do you think we need to do to, to guarantee the win? Bring the kids in. Coach, I think we should do this. Why? Well, because it has the effect of A, B, and C. Brilliant. So we're going to do that. You then it's a gamble. You might it might work, it might not. After the game, you reflect, you go through that process. So we changed A, B, and C. What effect did it have? What well, did this? It did that. Okay, so when would we use this again? What could we have done better? Why might it have worked? Why might it not have worked? Those, those are fantastic lessons that I think are often often neglected. And, and I think to an extent, your, your philosophy, your, your club style of play should underpin everything you do. But there should also be those opportunities for, all right, kids, how do we win today? Because you're creating independent, intelligent, thoughtful, creative players. You're developing leadership skills, and that is all part of that, uh, that learning. And winning becomes the byproduct of it. I'm really not asked if my kids win or lose. I'm concerned with, do they know more about football? <laughs> do they understand the game better? Do they love the game? And, and if you do it right, you might actually end up winning anyway. But that's not why we do it. So to finish off... At a young age, you're now about to start on the B license. Yes. Uh, so who or what has helped uh, to prepare you for this next stage in your coaching journey? Wow. Um, I mean, if I could list them all off, we'd be here for about a week. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Ricky Fernandez really helped me um, kind of discover coaching, uh, taught me the ropes, behaviour management, um, session design, um, and he really helped me kind of get that, develop my coaching image and my own coaching style really. Um, also why, uh, why, why she's, I've known her since I was maybe 10 um she's really helped me kind of refine my coaching ability and she's asked loads of um kind of imposing questions to make me think and reflect about my sessions and myself and why did I do that why 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 am I delivering a session like this why are these the coaching points are they effective you know again refining that coaching ability um and just kind of building me up and giving me that confidence to say that I can do it. Um, also, my dad, my dad has been massive, massive for me. Um, he's he's been there obviously since day one, funnily enough. Uh, but he's given me access. He's given me opportunities to go and watch games. I've, I've I've watched Real Madrid. I've watched Barcelona, Liverpool, City, all the big teams. You know, been abroad and watched them, and I've been to training grounds which I never would have been to before and watched professional teams train um, again that's inspiring seeing the way that certain coaches deliver 
sessions at these professional clubs has helped me create my coaching, you know, style. Um, being at Eastleigh Football Club for two years, uh, working, so working, playing under Jason Bristow, um, he was just amazing. Amazing guy, really, really good at what he's, what he's, what he was doing, um, and I learned a lot from him as as a player. And you know, he, he kind of his image was about intensity and work rate and attitude and just doing that bit extra that helped me kind of build on my core kind of values that really pushed me to be a better me. Getting out, the, getting out of bed that that hour earlier, he, he was pushing me to do that and. You know, being at training after everyone else, he encouraged me to do that. And again, that reflects on my coaching. You're, you're always the first one there. You're always the last one gone. Um, just working at all these different companies. Uh, I can't even name how many. I, I'm currently doing four slash five coaching jobs at the moment. Obviously, you know, one, because I love it. Two, to pay the bills of the cost of living going up. But all these different jobs I've had, you know, all these different school companies I've worked for, holiday courses, um, showcase events. I can't even begin to tell you how many hours I've put on the board in the last seven years. So I, I sometimes sit back and surprise myself to how how much I've done at the age I am. I don't even feel 21 sometimes. I, f I feel so much older. Uh, you know, I definitely don't know it all. I, there's a lot of people out there who know a lot more than me, but to be going on a B licence at the age I am, I think is arguably my biggest achievement to date. You know, it's it's going to be amazing. And all the people that have helped me along the way, obviously I'd like to say thank you to them, regardless if they listen to this or not. But um, yeah, I've, I've been surrounded by some absolutely incredible people throughout my coaching journey and I've it is a real blessing to be where I am you know it's not been easy I don't want any coaches to think being a coach is easy it's not but um I heard someone say the other day I can't remember who it was people always want to do the easy things because you know they want they, sorry they want all the hard things in life to be easy and quick you know but the trade-off for that is it loses value and you know you could say it like like a I don't know a nice a nice car. If everyone had a really nice car, it'd have no value to it. So what would be the point of having one? You could put that in a coaching perspective. You know, if everyone had a B license, what would be the point of having one? You know, this to get to, to this you know you know moment where I am now, and in a few months' time, starting my B license in October. You know that has a tremendous amount of value to me because I've worked so hard to get to it. I never thought I'd be on it. I never thought I'd have the opportunity to go on it. And I remember sitting down with uh, a friend of a friend of mine, FA mentor, um, Adrian Penrose, and he delivered my level one with me. He said, Henry, where do you want to be when you're 21? I said, I want to try and see if I can get towards my B license. And he was like, you know what, if that's what you want to do, do it go for it there's no reason why you can't do it and I thought you know what I'm just going to commit to it I'm going to give it a go and see where it gets me and here I am right now sat a few months time ready to go and having had all that hard work I'm looking forward to starting it and obviously more importantly finishing it and saying that I've done it and 
just seeing all the doors that it's going to open for me when I get it because I'm sure you're the same with COVID obviously that hit really hard and I lost my job during that time and I had to do a lot of things I didn't want to do but again hard work it increases value and doing this UA for B and seeing the doors it's going to open for me is going to create create a tremendous amount of opportunities and value to my job and my life so yeah there's a, a lot of stuff I've done a lot of places I've been but it's it's all paid off there's a lot of times where I'm sure you can relate I thought you know why am I actually doing this I hate this so much but it's all paid off and like I say to any coaches who are new who are listening listening to it if that's what you want to do B license A license pro license whatever it is you want to do it is worth it if you commit to it if you're going to do it half-hearted don't do it at all I used to play American football and coaches were always there if you're going to do it half-hearted you can sit on the bench and you can watch so you know being a good coach does take a lot of hard work but if you're committed to it and you want that value and you want to be in that dream world of having a ball at your feet at a multi-million pound training ground for a full-time job it is achievable it is 110 percent there for anyone who wants to do it so yeah looking forward to it mate it's gonna be really really good Best of luck. I know you're going to learn a lot and you're going to thrive doing it. Your under 13 team is really lucky to have you as a coach. Thank you for coming on. You've got all the makings of, of a top coach. Humble, driven, passionate, thoughtful, considerate, uh, open-minded. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving up your time and coming on and all the best with everything. All right, cheers. I really appreciate your time as well. Happy to come back on whenever a few months down the line and have a bit of a catch-up. Brilliant stuff from Henry. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you haven't already, make sure you check out the new Football Lingo app. Great for coaches who want to work in countries that don't have English as a first language. It can also work like other language apps to improve your language skills and football terminology. And Football Lingo also has the function to translate session plans. So you can export your pictures from Sports Session Plan to Football Lingo and translate your instructions and coaching points. Keep checking the board for all the latest jobs with tons of great opportunities at home and abroad. We'll see you next time.